Hey, Magic Lantern listeners, there will be no opening scene today, as this is a special episode covering all the things that the movies taught us about the birds and the bees. As a result, this episode is likely to have adult situations and mature delicacies, so please proceed accordingly if you are sensitive to those things, or if you are listening with younger folks. Or let them stay in the room and let us do the work for you. Magic Lantern Podcast, better than the schoolyard. Are you ready to go, you dirty bird? I sure am. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. This will be a special episode rather than our usual focus on one film, where we are going to discuss all the things that the movies taught us about the birds and the bees. It's episode 69, after all, so we went after low-hanging fruit, I think. Nice. And, I know it might seem like we planned it, but two and a half years ago we had no idea when we started the show that this would coincide with a Valentine's Day episode as well, so it works out pretty nicely all the way around. I think for you it will be the same, but I culled my list from those Films that were a specific milestone of some kind. They taught me something, or showed me something, or made me feel something. We've each picked a group of selections, and I know that mine come from theater experiences, cable, sneaked peeks from a neighbor's stash, a rental my mom brought home that she wasn't fully aware of what it contained, and a crazy rental with a high school friend who was quote-unquote finding himself. My list is a little similar to yours, but I think mine is a more narrow range of dates. What we're trying to achieve here, basically, is to talk about the pivotal things that cinema taught us about human sexuality, either in general or ours in particular. And we always strive to have a super sex-positive show. Ideally, at least I hope we have so far, whenever it comes up, we try to discuss it in a fun and inclusive, a warm and joyful way, exploring all sorts of different aspects of it, be that straight erotica, films with LGBTQ connections, even down to how marriage is portrayed in media and how we typically don't participate in those stereotypes like that Lockhorns thing. The time frame that my choices come from, I would also loosely define as the rise of cable television and the golden age of the video store. Home availability was a monumental thing to my adolescence, and I know it was for a ton of people my age and a few years either side of that. Everybody's time frame is different and the things that were available to them and that they could experience, but this was an epical shift going from having to consume this material in public with your Times Square raincoat crowd, and now you had all sorts of things available in the sanctity of your own home to do whatever you wanted with it. I can't imagine how it changed down through the years. Say, if we were coming of age in the 30s and you've got pre-code stuff all of a sudden going to the Hayes Code, where everybody could be a little bit naked before, and now they're tightly clamping down on this. In the late 50s, early 60s, all the way up into the 70s, actually, you had Hammer films starting to get more and more sexy as they went. And in the early 60s in particular, Americans were starting to become aware of how sexy European imports were, with things like Summer with Monica and I Am Curious Yellow. All of a sudden good old-fashioned American movies seemed a little bit stayed, a little bit stale. This is the question I asked myself the other night when we were watching Eye in the Labyrinth, which is a Jalo film. Where was Jalo my whole life? If only I could have seen all of those European beauties of 
any sex or pansexual tendencies, I think it really would have opened my eyes. Well, thank goodness for the home video revolution and how it has progressed since then with restoration and wider distribution for everything. Because now, fortunately, we can go back and partake of all of those things that we missed. Because for me, I think maybe a little bit less for you because you're a few years younger, my coming of age was dead in the middle of the golden age of teen sex comedies. Porkies, screwballs, hots, <laughs> all of those things. <laughs> A good number of which did not resonate with me at all. So those things aren't going to be on my list, but several other things from that time period are. So what we've each done is we've chosen five examples apiece to illustrate some of the important lessons that we gleaned about how to do it and how things get done. I'm going to be adding some background of my own based on my specific viewing experiences and when I came of age, but I'll get to that in a little bit. So how about I kick this show off? Let's go. How about some dirty dancing up in here? <laughs> that is what you are coming right out of the gate with. I guess this is this maybe the most significant one for you. Is that why it's up front? How did you arrange yours? You know, when we started talking about this, I just went in the order of things that came into my mind. Dirty dancing was definitely a pivotal experience for me. It came out when I was about 13 years old. Perfect time for this. The milestone in this experience was seeing semi-nudity and realizing that I felt excited about it, and it was male semi-nudity. It's when I began to equate dance and movement with sex, and also the joy of discovering the freeze frame. I can tell you exactly what the moment is. What it's, is the minute mark on that? Do you have you any? No, I don't, okay. but I can go right to it. And if I still had the VHS copy, it would probably be two seconds after that moment. We're not going to go deep in the plot here, right? Because in this instance, does plot matter whatsoever with what you're talking uh, excuse about? Excuse me, of course it does. Okay. <laughs> it's about a young woman coming of age. I will say, pretty much every woman that has been important in my life that is my age or a little bit to either side, for the great majority of them, this is a very important film for all sorts of reasons because it treats that subject of a young woman coming of age with a seriousness that you didn't see in a lot of other things. Was this the first time you remember thinking, I can relate to this and it is honest? It is, and I could relate to Baby. I had aspirations that were bigger than what would be expected of me at the time. I could also deeply relate to the idea of a person who might be overlooked by most, but knew that they had passion inside of them. Did you also have aspirations to get that dance instructor's shirt off? Have you seen Patrick Swayze in this <laughs> I thing? I have. It was also really important to me because it was a shift in how I looked at men and my idea of sexiness. What was it before? I would say for a very, very, very long time, starting from a very young age, it was all about Tom Selleck and Magnum P.I. A very realistic goal for a 10 to 12 year old girl. Magnum P.I. came out when I was young. I mean, I was seven, eight years old. And that informed my idea of what men should be like. And that was great hair, lots of facial hair, a fantastic mustache and short shorts. And they typically had a weapon of some kind. <laughs> Could I say anything without it going one way? Yeah, I don't think that there's going to be any innuendo unturned in this episode. 
But truly, that was the age of the TV detective and a lot of procedurals. Yes, but Beretta, I don't think, was inducing quivers in the female audience, although I guess that was a few years before. That was way before my time. This was more about Magnum P.I. and Riptide. Matt Houston. Matt Houston. Oh, God, I forgot about him. <laughs> I love that guy. But here comes Johnny Castle, Patrick Swayze. This is a person who is in touch with his artistic side, who is deeply committed to it, and who has a physical skill and a representation of what his soul is like on the inside. Albeit a tough guy, and supposedly from the wrong side of the tracks, which was still really attractive, he wasn't a thug, and we very much turned our gaze on his body and were free to do so. Also, the dancing is great in it. You've got Patrick Swayze, you've got Cynthia Rhodes, choreographed by Kenny Ortega, friend of the show, and you've got Jerry Orbach and Kelly Bishop, two people with amazing musical theater backgrounds. I didn't know that at the time specifically, but I think that's why this film endures and why people still watch it and still love it. Well, for my first selection, I'm going with The Hunger from 1983, directed by Tony Scott and starring Catherine Deneuve, Susan Sarandon, and David Bowie. The reason this makes the list is because it was probably the first significant exposure I had to same-sex sexual activity. My very first exposure to the idea was probably on the sitcom Soap with Billy Crystal's character Jody, but that was played more for comedy, obviously, and was not as intense as this was. I definitely remember that storyline. Well, that storyline did not have the explicitness of Catherine Deneuve and Susan Sarandon rubbing against each other, which was very interesting to me at age 13. That got my attention. That's the big thing. Later, though, the gender fluidity, the dangerous sex aspect of it, goth girls, and the idea that men and women have the same needs and drives, all seeds of ideas that would become much more interesting to me later. You mentioned the dangerous element. It seems like, based on your history, you had certainly encountered those early 80s, late 70s horror movies at this point, which makes me think of sex equals death. Is that something that occurred to you at that age? It did in one of my examples coming up very specifically. That harkens all the way back to when I was 10 in 1980, but I'm going to save that a little bit. It's pure happenstance that my next choice also has a same-sex angle, and it could not be more different from <laughs> The Hunger. And that is Sacred Passion, which came out in 1989. This, as described by IMDb, is a look at lovemaking techniques for gay guys. I like your description of it much better when you were telling me about it. I characterize this as my first gay porn with puppies. It's not what you think, folks. Nope, I'm about to tell you what it is, because it is burned in my brain. There is a scene when one of the actors is erotically dancing as a seduction. Again, take this as my memory, because I couldn't locate it anywhere. We see our narrator slash guide look up as this man opens a door, and we see our narrator slash guide, and he is covered in puppies. He had the most amazing look of inarticulate, poor acting surprise on his face. What was he doing with the puppies? I have no idea. They were just there for adornment. Maybe they were all having a good time. I'm not sure. 
I put this on here not just because it was my first gay porn, but mostly because at the time that I watched it, which was in high school, I somehow felt like a deviant watching it. I felt like people were going to be coming through the windows and shining a spotlight on me. And I felt guilty, I can't even articulate exactly why, for many years for having watched it. Now, you call it gay porn, but I don't know if that is classifying it correctly, because I think this is one of those cases where there's a weird trick of memory. You seem to recall it being actual hardcore, but everywhere we looked to find any evidence of it suggests that it is not. And it's also shorter than I remember. It's only about an hour at most. So what could have been actual sex to me may not have even been occurring on screen. There was definitely nudity, but I think I just couldn't quite put the pieces together. It now seems totally absurd to me to have any sort of guilty thought about it. What do you think that stems from? I really cannot put my finger on it. I come from a very liberal household. I was with a friend who was gay and we would talk about it all the time. He was not my first or only gay friend at that point. So the only thing I can think of is repression that I didn't even know I was inheriting. Had you seen straight porn at that point? No. So that combined with the deviance of the puppies actually had to be <laughs> shell-shocking. <laughs> well, my next selection is not nearly as peculiar as that one. Mine is much more of a life lesson. And in this case, that life lesson came from National Lampoon's Vacation from 1983, directed by Harold Ramis and starring Chevy Chase and Beverly D'Angelo. And the lesson that I took from this, it was the first mature example I ever remember encountering in the cinema of handling sexual jealousy. In the film, Chevy Chase has this ongoing cross-country flirtation with Christy Brinkley that culminates in them all stopping at the same motel in a skinny-dipping episode in the motel pool. He gets busted, everyone sees, and Beverly D'Angelo goes back to their room he asks her if she's mad, and she just calmly replies, no. I was so taken by this idea. She simply, matter-of-factly asks, do you like that girl? Is that what you want? I just loved her response to that so much, and it made a lingering impression on me. It was such a reasonable, pragmatic, and sensible question, and it taught me significantly early on that issues of sex don't have to turn you into an idiot. That's really interesting because I remember it a little bit differently. It seemed like she was much more angry about it. And didn't they sleep separately that night? No, in fact, it's the opposite. She goes to great extremes to show that she's just as game and as much fun. And she strips and jumps in the pool as well. Again, it's one of those trick of memory things, maybe just depending on where you're coming from, what your perspective is. But I distinctly remember thinking what a bold idea it seemed like to just address this straight on. And in retrospect, it turns out to be the most mature piece of writing associated with any National Lampoon branded product that I can recall all the way back to the beginnings of the magazine. Also a good point. I wonder as well if you can even recall having this idea, regardless of what the question or the answer had been, the idea that you can like more than one thing. That idea turns up in my honorable mentions. Quit skipping okay. ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. What do you have next? I chose something, and I'm wondering if it might have even turned up on your list, and that is Looking for Mr. Goodbar. Also in my honorable mentions. This was from 1977, directed by Richard Brooks, with Diane Keaton, William Atherton, and Richard Gere. 
This was one of those films from the early days of A&E where they would show it a lot, so I watched it a lot. Did you ever see it uncensored? No, I probably still haven't, actually. I chose this because it was the first time I could recall seeing a woman be horny on screen. At one point, she puts the pillow between her legs as she's trying to sleep. She's feeling frustrated. And because of the time that I saw it, I had to have that explained to me. Interesting. You were watching this with your mother, I assume? This viewing was watching with a family friend who was about my mom's age. Do you recall how they explained that to you? I think she flat out said, she's horny. Succinct to the point. Absolutely. And it wasn't until later that I could connect my own feelings to that. And so it was actually really important to me to already understand in advance what was happening. Well, I said this one was an honorable mention on my list, and it's because this one file it under further developing my idea of what my type is. I think it's probably not uncommon to develop a number of screen crushes if you go to the movies as much as we do, and you have what I would consider an average to over-average sex drive. I'll follow up a little bit more on this. I keep saying I have more examples, I have more examples, but this was definitely one that I thought, hmm, that kind of person interests me. We also should mention when talking about this that a lot of these while we are mining them for the part that is exciting, often contained difficult, frightening, dangerous things as well that could be read as anti-sex material, cautionary tales about how to conduct yourself. How much, I guess when you're that age and you're not catching all of the subtext perhaps, it is a lot easier to just pick and choose the parts that you remember as specifically exciting. But as you grow older and go back to them or think about them in retrospect, does it change how exciting they were for you to realize, oh, this is what this movie was saying? Just speaking of that specific example of looking for Mr. Goodbar, even then, I feel like I got the message or was creating the message that the violence perpetrated against her was not her fault. She may have made bad decisions, but sexual violence needs to be removed from the idea of passion or crimes of passion. It's straight up violence. So does it play as victim blaming in retrospect? I think that the people who have a problem with it are of that mindset. I don't have that mindset and I don't have the same problem with it. I feel like it was ultimately more clear eyed than that and that you maybe needed to be paying close attention. Also, though, I've been watching a lot of forensic files, so that could be coloring my view. That there are just straight up psychos in the world. Well, allow me to take that and get on my segue and go to my next selection, which is Prom Night from 1980. This is directed by Paul Lynch and stars Jamie Lee Curtis, who was hot on the heels of her two John Carpenter movies, Halloween and The Fog, well on her way to defining the term Scream Queen for an entire generation of us as Terror Train came immediately after this one. You alluded to it a little bit earlier. Horror as a genre has been a profound influence in a number of aspects in my life. And, like you mentioned, in a lot of cases, is inextricably linked with sex and death. You had to know a horror title would show up on my list, and what horror movies of the 80s taught me was, don't do it. Fortunately, I did not listen to them. <laughs> I was going to say. The first one to plant that flag in my brain, though, was Prom Night. And not even specifically because of the film itself, but because of the trailer. I was 10, and I was still not going to see a ton of horror movies in the theater at that point. But I was not immune to the TV spot for it. 
Everyone is getting dolled up in the slinkiest 1980 fashions for a night of prom night debauchery. And what burned itself into my brain is the very last series of images you see in that trailer. Kelly and Slick are parked out in his van fooling around, and she is propped up against the back door. That door is ripped open by a masked lunatic, her head falls backward, exposing her throat, and it is slash city for this lovely, scantily clad young lady. Good luck getting to sleep tonight, ten-year-old me. That was goddamn terrifying. How do you think you can avoid the idea of don't do it if all of these films were telling you that that was the case? You just have to be persistent. Or smarter, as I think. Good thing I was both, I guess, is what you're saying. We talked a little bit about it on our Patreon bonus episode about food movies, about how there are two primary drives in human beings. To eat and to propagate the species. It takes a lot to keep you from doing either one. And I am proud to say that I have yet to be put off of either by any example I've ever seen in the cinema. Boy, I'm with you, and that leads right into my next choice. This was when I found my thing. And it was The Lover from 1992, directed by Jean-Jacques Anou with Jane March and Tony Leung. I discovered that there was something that was explicit and very exciting, and it bridged the gap I didn't quite know I had been looking for between porn and what friend of the show Mike Scharf calls pling-pling movies. Why does he call them that? This means that when you're finally getting to the good stuff, the pling-pling soft piano music starts on the soundtrack, pling-pling, drowning out all the noises you actually want to hear. I also had this on VHS, and so spots were worn into it as well. It was a beautiful discovery, and I'm so glad I found it. I remember this one as well, and it made a distinct impression on me also. This movie is extremely erotic, and it makes me think about how seldom films that purport to be erotic turn out to be so. There is usually some element of them that is so overblown that it pushes it into the absurd or the ineffective. What combination of elements is it that reins this in and keeps it on track and makes it successful in that regard rather than being one of these more ridiculous examples? Before I get to that, I want to catch the tail end of what you had said. And I think about all of those things that I knew I didn't like, that didn't speak to me, that people didn't look like me, they weren't physically attractive to me for whatever reason, they weren't my age or anywhere around it, whatever that age was for me, there was nothing in the story or the acting or the direction or the setting itself that would lend itself to repeat viewings. I think that's a difference here. I really like Tony Lung, especially. I think he's absolutely wonderful. He is one of the two best Tony Lungs in the world. Absolutely. So a quality of performance thing, the quality of the story being told, the quality of the actors telling the story. Yes, and I really come back to, I think they're absolutely gorgeous. I think that that's what I respond to in all of these giallos as well. I mean, is it bad to say that if someone is truly beautiful to look at and has great hair or a great body, that you, there are worse ways to spend 90 minutes? I want to talk a little bit more about that idea in the wrap-up, so don't let me forget. I won't, and I have one last thing to say here, and that is, in addition to what you were talking about, about erotic films often not actually being erotic, it's the same way a lot for romantic films. We talk about this a bit in our bonus episode on Waitress. 
It's so often difficult to understand why any of these people are with each other, what they like about each other, what they're attracted to, but it is very easy to understand in this film. How about your next choice? My next choice is Fast Times at Ridgemont High from 1982, directed by Amy Heckerling and starring Jennifer Jason Lee and Sean Penn. And I am not picking it for the reason that everybody probably assumes. Because Eric Stoltz is in it? <laughs> that is definitely not why I chose it. It was for the flowering of a young Forrest Whitaker. No, that actually wasn't <laughs> I that love either. him in that. <laughs> the reason I choose it is because I think it is ground zero, perhaps, in terms of me figuring out what I like and what I am attracted to, what my type is. And the main thing I understood after watching this is that my tastes went against the grain somewhat. Liking Phoebe Cates to me seemed easy and boring and expected. Any chump could be excited by that. Now this Jennifer Jason Lee, on the other hand, what's her story? It sent me down a decades-long path of gravitating towards smart girls, odd girls, pale girls, not the popular girls. And it may have been the very first example that I can think of that taught me that it was okay. When we talk about those different lenses, what strikes me and always has from when I saw it at a pretty young age was the abortion. Yeah, for what I think was probably marketed as a stoner comedy featuring a ton of Jeff Spicoli, it was heavy. And I was watching this beautiful, vulnerable girl go through what had to be the most difficult time of her life, making bad decisions in pursuit of this thing that we were all interested in at that age. Her story being extremely common, I'm sure. But there was definitely a spark I felt that was different. I did not want to be a caretaker to that character like a brother. I was definitely attracted to her. And I don't think it was in a way that I intended to save her. Because as the years have gone on, and her and Elizabeth Shue, and a number of other actresses that remind me of them, all sort of start to blur together into this large, super sexy, amorphous being... I think the other thing that probably struck me about it, and I remember her so, is that I don't think you saw a ton of high school movies that taught you that. It's weird to look back and see how much Roger Ebert hated this thing, for example. He called it a, quote, scuzz pit, unquote. Wow. But when I put it next to the Porkies and the other things similar to that, private school, private lessons, it had a lot more resonance and there was a lot more to her character than just cannon fodder for these horny weirdos who are trying to steal her underwear or whatever they were doing in those other movies. What about you? More high school formative experiences here? No, this was before high school, but it was definitely a formative experience along those same lines of discovering what it is I like. And that was A Room with a View from 1985. My mom rented this for us on a day that I was homesick. We already knew what it was, but we were not prepared for the incredibly amazing scene of lots of penises. <laughs> there are quite a few in the bathing sequence. There are. Come and have a bathe, someone says. Yes, please. This was my first time seeing penises on screen. It was very sex positive. And the crush I developed on Julian Sands and other very pale men was incredibly enduring and wonderful. It was also important to me because he was a declarative man. How so? What do you mean? I think there are way too many instances of, I'll just like whoever likes me, or chasing someone who is so aloof and mysterious. 
do you mean this in this film, in Merchant Ivory in general, or specifically in your personal life? In early viewings and early personal life, formative viewings, those comedies, those sex comedies, those teen comedies that I was allowed to watch, the man that was the object, the man to be chased, the man to be sought after was mysterious and you never knew what he was thinking and you didn't know if he liked you. That's not the case with George Emerson. Well, if you want to talk declarative, it doesn't get much more declarative than my final choice. I saved my most intense example for the end. I can't wait. My last choice is the opening of Misty Beethoven from 1976. Oh my goodness. Directed by Radley Metzger, who turned out to be one of my favorite erotic filmmakers as the years went on. He did this one under his nom de porn, Henry Paris, and it stars Constance Money and Jamie Gillis. It is a hardcore reimagining of Pygmalion, and it was the very first time I saw hardcore sex depicted on screen. It was made in 1976, but I saw it right in the same 1980 to 83 cycle that all of my other choices are from. It was the summer that I was running my fireworks stand, and my aunt and uncle owned a convenience store, and I had my stand in their parking lot. It was just far enough away from home that it was really inconvenient for my parents to come pick me up all the time, so I spent a number of nights staying over with my cousins. Uh-oh, I knew there had to be a cousin in there somewhere. They had a satellite dish. Nuff said. And late at night, they would tune it in to the adult channels. This was some top-flight cousining, I have to say. And it turns out that they had pretty good taste because this film is considered to be the crown jewel of the porno chic era. Deep Throat, Devil and Miss Jones, Behind the Green Door, all that. This is the most artistic and I think most revered, respected film to come out of the golden age of porn. Do you think that's all due to Radley Metzger? His stamp is definitely on it. It definitely aimed higher than every other thing I've seen probably before or since. I think we talked about this when you first mentioned your sacred passion example about how you didn't realize that sitting together with people in a room and watching porn was a thing. That's correct. I can't recall other times I've done it, but the very first time I did it, that was definitely the case. And this whole Radley Metzger connection and then what he went on to and how my tastes have developed over the years and this thing that we were talking about, about availability, it got me to thinking about how the standard old objections are beginning to lose their relevance when people protest pornography. The numbers don't lie. People watch it more than they watch anything else on the internet. And, correspondingly, some people obviously like to be watched. I think the way things are going, ultimately, the porn exploits women argument that a lot of people make that was definitely applicable to the early days of this. One, it betrays your heterocentric worldview because, surprise, like you mentioned, a lot of porn doesn't have women in it at all, first of all. So instead should be rephrased as exploits the performers. The other thing is that now, like with so many other things, creatives actually control their own content and its distribution and the money they make from it. Obviously, there's always going to be the seamy side of the business, the dangerous side of it. But there are now options for you to consume if you're into that sort of thing that you don't have to feel bad about the conditions surrounding its creation. I don't know if it's a coincidence, but I think I discovered that those sorts of things made by creators are what I respond to more. They just tend to look like me. Now you're talking. 
Oh my goodness. <laughs> well, I know you usually have 10 million choices when it comes to a survey like this. Do you have some honorable mentions that are lingering around? I only have two. Maybe for the first time ever, I think I have more than you. Oh my goodness. I was prepared to not even get into my honorable mentions, but if you say so, here I go. The year was 1985. I was at my best friend's house, and we discovered that her parents had a hidden stash. Not really that well hidden, because it was in their den. I think it was just behind a couple of other things. They had recorded a film off of cable, I'm assuming, and that was The Joy of Sex. I had no idea what was going on. I still can't recall details from the film. I haven't seen it since then. All I can remember, and I could be wildly off base, even with the title, it could have been that we put something in, but we watched something else, because I vividly remember some guy in the film leaning over some sort of a barrel and a lobster attaching itself to his penis. <laughs> Do you remember this film being particularly arousing? Absolutely not. I think we were trying to be so quiet and we were probably giggling our heads off at all of this stuff because we didn't want to be caught. But it was definitely one of the first times I realized that parents slash adults were into stuff. Well, I've got one of those too. And actually mine predates any sexy movie I ever saw. My stash that I stumbled upon was my dad's Playboy magazines. But just to keep it cinema related, I distinctly remember from going through all those, they had an annual sex in cinema edition, which taught me for the first time. I remember thinking, they put this stuff in movies? The thing that particularly sticks in my mind, there was a pictorial, and this was back in 1976, so I was really little, but there was a pictorial with Chris Christopherson and Sarah Miles where they were recreating the sex scenes from The Sailor Who Fell From Grace With The Sea, a film I think I've recommended on the show before. And they went a little farther than the film went. They even went so far as to create new scenes that didn't exist. And I think this photo shoot precipitated the end of Christopherson's marriage to Rita Coolidge. But the sex and cinema issues were always bright spots of the year whenever I knew that those were coming. My last honorable mention definitely goes all the way. Okay. <laughs> and that is Nine Songs from 2004. Uh. In case you don't know what it is, it features unsimulated sex with the two leads, Kieran O'Brien and Margot Stilley. And when you say unsimulated sex, a lot of it. It is not just a quick two-second snippet, an insert that you might see in another film. It is what the film is built on. It is. It's the entire course of the film. The exceptions are the nine songs that punctuate scenes. I discovered that there was something deeply arousing that was unsimulated, that was actual intercourse, that was people I wanted to watch, and then also had something else going for it. Though I do turn the sound off whenever Margot Stilly is talking. <laughs> Take that, Margot Stilly. Okay, how many more honorable mentions do you have? Well, before we go on from that one, I want to ask you a few questions about this idea. Films with unsimulated sex in them. What do you think they need to achieve? What do they need to make that a viable part of the story without it being a distraction? I think some of them have already done it, actually. I think there are successful examples in the realm of the senses. Blissfully Yours by Pitchapong Wearsetakul, a filmmaker I truly love. Short Bus, Antichrist has one of those short insert shots I mentioned. Dogtooth, Starlet. There are a number of examples I can think of, 
that actually are in excellent films. Is it just like the softcore erotica versions that we were talking about, that performance and strength of story and all that has to be as significant, if not more, than the actual performance of sexual activity? Or is it a much harder balance to strike when you know that the distraction of actual sex is somewhere on the horizon? It's all you're thinking about getting to. Are you impatient with the story to actually get to that part and get on with the business at hand? If you're asking me if I fast forward through each of those songs, I do. (laughs) And I don't feel badly about it. So it's not entirely a success then. It's set pieces, not a film. Let me clarify. The first time, I watched it all the way through. Okay. Subsequent viewings, I get to what I want to see. And again, I don't feel badly about it. That is the point. And I think that that's okay to explore that as an idea. Okay. I just have a couple of more. Specifically, Summer Lovers from 1982 with Daryl Hannah and Peter Gallagher. Speaking of great hair. I remember seeing that ad and or maybe hearing it reviewed somewhere and thinking to my 12-year-old self, wait a minute. More than two people can do this at once? Let me put this down in my adolescent notebook for science. Turns out, you can. And the other thing from that time period, I think, is the idea of Brooke Shields as an entity. We're talking Pretty Baby through the Blue Lagoon on into Endless Love, which was good for me at that age because she was just a few years older than me. So in a way, it made much more sense for me to be watching those films as they came out chronologically to be attracted to her than some actress that would have been, in my mind at the time, my mother's age. But looking back at it now, it is certainly peculiar and troubling at how much they were sexualizing this child. But at 9, at 12, at 15, it seemed to operate in just the right ratio of age difference for me to be excited by that idea. In retrospect, it seems a very European era of American filmmaking, because I certainly don't think that they could get away with that now. And more so than ever, ironically, it feels like the American impulse is to still censor sex much more strenuously than they focus on violence. I think it's no accident that specifically those two films don't take place in America with Summer Lovers, it's going abroad for this experience to you happen. say that again. <laughs> so then do you feel like you have more of a European sensibility about things? You mentioned specifically a couple of times an idea that I said I wanted to come back to. There are quite obviously films, performers, filmmakers, whose sole reason for existence is to generate that tingling feeling within you. Their entire raison d'etre is to make you think, I'd hit that. And also Prince. And that's for all genders and preferences. There are people that are trying to exploit all of those markets. I think I know your answer, obviously, since you said a little bit of it already, but do you feel at all conflicted about that stuff? Exploitation films, objectification of those performers. The whole point of this episode is that sex is fun. And I maintain that on our deathbeds, you've heard me say this a million times, no matter how staid and sober and artfully you lived your life prior to then, The majority of us are not going to say with our final breath, oh, I wish I'd had a lot less fun sex with a lot fewer hot people. So is there anything about indulging in these films that feels antithetical to you, that gives you trouble? Absolutely not. I will clarify that, though, and say, not now. I think for too long, whether it's because I was an only child, I didn't have cousins, 
or that I learned too much of the wrong thing from John Hughes films, for example, and not enough from things like Gregory's Girl, that I couldn't fully express what it is that I wanted or felt until later in life. I was going to mention that because it looks like when I look at my choices, my examples ranging from 1976 to 1983, and then yours, which seem to be scattered much later into your adolescence and young adulthood, we have the differing perspectives of early adopter, late bloomer. Is it fair to classify it like that? I think so. I feel like I straddle a little bit of an odd period. My mom was a nurse and believed very much in being straightforward about sex ed, about body ed. So I got the book, Where Do I Come From, when I was six years old, and it had naked people in it and genitals. And of course, I showed it to all my friends. And I used the right words from a very young age. My mom also took me to everything. And so I was watching adult things at a young age, and I was missing those teenage things, especially those teen sex comedies. Because I was oddly too young to watch those, but too young to also fully understand the adult themes and these adult dramas that I was watching. There were all kinds of risque things around. We had Hollywood Babylon, for example. We had some cable but not premium channels. I had no cousins to speak of. So when I was finally living on my own, my group of friends and I would rent movies specifically for the perceived erotic content of them. Hello, Red Shoe Diaries. Absolutely. And then we would basically give each other massages or go skinny dipping, so I was constantly titillated. That does make me think of something, though, the Red Shoe Diaries example and how the early adopter, late bloomer thing happens. Is there a significant section along the way that you realize you were developing the thing that you enjoyed, a specific taste? Because from a very young age, I was definitely thinking about that. And for me, that was the mid to late 70s. And so that's the beginning of everything, because at first, what do you covet? You covet the things you see every day. And so even though, for example, I didn't see a film like Rolling Thunder until I was older, the age you're talking about when you're going to the video store with your friends, I have it built into me to respond to Linda Haynes in that because she ticks all my boxes that I have been subconsciously developing all this time since I was very young. 70s girls, sun-dappled, natural, wearing nothing but your denim chambray shirt after you just did it. That is an aesthetic. Can you imagine the fate of anyone who actually came of age in the time period that you're talking about, in the mid to early 90s, let's say, and the fate that befell anyone that was into guys at that time? They are forever doomed to feel a tingle when they see that center part bowl haircut, and they are constantly wondering what you've got going on beneath those Jinko jeans. <laughs> For me, it was a whole lot of... Long hair. Are we talking Fabio long hair? No, we're talking 90s grunge, Eddie Vedder style, long hair. Can't blame you for that one. Yeah. That came after the Tom Selleck, the Patrick Swayze, the period of Julian Sands and your pale tubercular vampires. <laughs> but for a long time, I felt like I could never find just the right softcore, just the right hardcore. I felt so frustrated by images that were of no value to me. Once in a while, you have someone like Russell Crowe come along so I can realize what uh, beefcakes really do to me. You are into Australian punchaholics. <laughs> yes, I am. Okay. 
I think I was also the only person, and you can attest to this, who didn't realize that everything is on the internet. Yeah, I don't know how. You, you still don't know that in some cases. All the time. Yeah. If the internet has taught me anything regarding sexuality, it is that people will do anything, and still other people will record them doing that thing. I think you've said it another way that I really appreciate as well, which is that whatever you're into, somebody else is into it too, and they've probably made a website about it. Which I think is a great thing. More power to you. Absolutely. That's why I don't feel badly about any of these ideas of skipping past the music to go to the good stuff. Okay. Well, does that wrap it up for you nicely, do you think? Did you cover all your bases, all the examples that were important to you, the things that you wanted to get across? I think so, and hopefully we've given people ideas about things that they might want to go out and try as well if they haven't already. And we would certainly be interested in hearing about what your formative experiences were as well, so feel free to tweet at us, check out our Facebook page, and let us know. We would love to hear what your Sex Ed 101 movies were. And with that, that brings us to the end of episode 69. Insert my chuckle here. <laughs> For a different type of sexy good time, you can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash magiclantern. There are tons of fun perks there for you at all sorts of levels. We appreciate any support that you could give us. If you would just like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search for Magic Lantern Podcast at any of those venues. We are on Twitter at Lantern underscore cast, and I just wanted to take a second to say thanks to everyone who has shared the show or given us feedback since last time. Right off the bat, a special thanks to Keith Rich, who is the latest owner of one of our fancy Magic Lantern enamel pins with a glow-in-the-dark beam. I know we haven't mentioned them in a while, but we still have plenty. If you would like to purchase one, you can contact us at any of the venues I mentioned before. We'll do $5 plus shipping on those. In addition to Keith... Thanks to Maritza Gulin, Andy Wolverton, Robert Hornack, Matteo Boscarol, Scott Morris, Drew Tavendale, and Craig Eastman over at Fuds on Film, Grindhouse Dave, and the very nice person who left us a five-star rating anonymously at Apple Podcasts this week. You can find us there at Apple Podcasts, as well as Google Play and Stitcher Radio, or just about any other podcatcher you use. If you would also like to leave us a rating or review, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at the website magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 